Our sermon text this morning is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We have one more sermon out of Philippians chapter 2 this evening. As you turn in there, let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want eyes to see your glory, God. We want to be able, not just to read, but to actually think and to come to... To have this great affection and awe for you that we will stand and say, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God, how unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable are your ways. God, we don't want to just read those words. We want to stand in awe of you and have those be our own words as we see your glory. And you have... In your kindness and in your goodness revealed yourself in your word. And so it's to your word that we go. And we ask that you would reveal yourself, God. That your spirit would open our eyes, would soften our hearts. To believe you, to trust you, to love you even more. Amen. Isaac Newton, if you're a plebeian like me, Sir Isaac Newton, I guess. Isaac Newton, possibly a heretic, maybe you didn't know this, uh, if you read some of his works, might have sided with Arius in a little Trinitarian misunderstanding. He actually, he's known because of his science and his mathematical writings, he actually wrote volumes upon volumes of theological work. Um, but he, it was his mathematics and his science by which we still know him today. And all of his science and discovery can be summed up, as he put it, in that which goes up must come down. Very good. 
It's, it's inevitable. It's true. You know it's true. This is why even when you're, even when you're flying in a plane, you realize I'm in this tube miles above where I should be. And there's a ch- this plane, you know it's going to land. That's why you're freaked out, because you know it's going to land. And you hope maybe, by God's grace, it's going to be in this little, little runway, this little narrow strip of land. If not, it could be the mountains or the ocean, whatever you're flying over. But you know it's going to come down. Or if you play baseball or softball in your outfield like me, you, love, you lament this. That it's going to come down because I'm in the outfield and I back up and then the ball falls in front of me. So I charge forward next time the lands behind me. You hate it, but you know eventually it's going to come down. Or if you're sitting in a deer stand, you know that which comes up must come down. Good job, Jake. You learn this immutable truth of this statement. But there's even a more sure statement than that. That that which goes up must come down. There's something even more sure. And it's given to us in our text. That which goes down must come up. That which God brings low, he will lift up and exalt. That which is humbled will be brought up by God's goodness and by his grace. And finally, that's what we are going to see And our text here this morning. You're going to see that exaltation. This lifting up. This exaltation is the fruit. Is the inevitable fruit. That will always come. From this sovereign lowliness. That we've spent several weeks covering now. This exaltation is the fruit of sovereign lowliness. Alright, how are we going to see that? Verse 9, you're going to see this exalted, exalted Christ and how he is high and lifted up. Then you're going to see in verses 10 and 11 the inevitable result of that, which is that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So you're going to see the exalted Christ and then bended knees. So, just to recap, for Advent this year, Curtis's idea, we've been going through Philippians chapter 2 and looking at this lowliness of Christ and how that is tied in with his birth. This Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but... He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a, of a slave, being found, being born in the likeness of men. So here he's up and he's coming down, being born in the servant, being found in the likeness of men. And even when he is then found in the likeness of men, he continues then to humble himself and go down. And he became obedient to, the, to his heavenly father, even obedient to the point of death, lower still. Not only death, but death upon the cross. And this is a hymn the early church is singing. The people of God rejoicing in the humility of Christ. But this glorious hymn, it doesn't end there. Death is never the end. Death is never the final chapter. It's only a prelude to the introduction 
of eternal life. So in this ancient hymn, when they get to this climax of even death on the cross, the death is not the end. It's just a point in which they draw their breath and then begin to sing about the exaltation of Christ. Death is never the end. And that's certainly the case when we see the humiliation upon Christ, of Christ upon the cross. So look at this exaltation. Therefore, in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Now as a parent, one of your, one of your great joys as a parent the kids grow out of eventually. Um, but one of your great joys is when you come home and you open up the door, and it's usually the two to four-year-old, they see you and they exclaim, Dad! Papa! And whatever they're doing, they could be in the middle of a craft, they could be in a timeout, they could be anything. And they just come with complete abandonment. They come and run to you. And all, every, every care of the world just melts her off. You don't care about anything else right now. And you pick them up and you squeeze them. And you love them. And you kiss them. And you can't help. You don't just squeeze them and put them down. You can't help. You just lift them up even a little bit higher. You exalt in them. It's the same thing you see here with your heavenly father. With Christ. He is so delighted in his son that he cannot help but to exalt him. And by the way, your heavenly father now delights in you. Not because of anything you've done, if you're in Christ, but he delights in you in that same way that he delights in his own son because you are in Christ. Notice who is exalting him. It's, it's not Christ exalting himself. Look at it. Therefore God, what does he do? God has highly exalted him. It's not Christ who's exalting himself. How could he? He's dead. He was dead. He was in the grave. He was only raised when God was satisfied and when God desired to raise him up. He is bound, Christ is bound to joyfully do the will of his Father. Never, never once seeking to exalt himself. But rather what Christ is doing is not exalting himself, but revealing the will of his heavenly Father. Revealing to the fallen world the way of redemption back to the Father. That's what Christ is doing. He's revealing himself. He's not exalting himself. So if Christ, the Son of God, is not exalting himself, application number one, why do you? Why do you? Our world is wired in such a way that it rewards those who exalt themselves. Social media didn't make this up. Social media capitalizes on this. We exalt ourselves constantly. In business, if you want to do well, what do you do? 
you don't point out the work that other people are doing. No, you just exalt yourself. You talk about yourself. And it's usually those who don't exalt themselves, they're left behind. If you keep your head down and work at work, you're not going to get promoted because everybody knows they still need the work to get done. So they're going to keep you there to do the work. And meanwhile, the guy who's promoting himself will eventually keep going up. That's how it works, unfortunately. If you want to close the deal, if you want to, remember this, you're sitting down, if you want to close the deal and the sale, you have to tell them how great you are and that you can deliver on it. What are, you, what are you going to tell them? Well, I'm sure there's other people that are better than me. Like, no, you walk in and you have to tell them you can go with other people, but it would be a mistake because we're the best. You have to exalt yourself. That's the way it's wired. But here is Christ who is not exalting himself. He leaves it up to his heavenly father to do it. Notice who also is not exalting him. It's not us. We are not the ones exalting Christ. Now, before you burn me at the stake here, just look at the text. God the Father is the one who is exalting him. How quickly we read ourselves back into the narrative as if we are the ones exalting Christ. No, no, it's the Heavenly Father who is exalting him. And here's why this is a beautiful thing. Because we can't lift him up high enough. We can't. If you see the Himalayan mountains or any mountains and you look up and you, you come out of wherever you're staying and you look up and you see the mountains and you know, I cannot ascend to those heights. I can't. We want Christ so high and so lifted up that it's clear that it's beyond a place in which we can do it. I want it higher than I comprehend. I want him in a place that only the Heavenly Father can put him. That's where we want Christ. So it's not Christ exalting himself. It's not us. And it's from our low state that we will adore him. And we will worship him. This exalted Christ. Something else to point out. Then our Messiah is not just lifted up just a little bit. It's not just raised out of the ground. He's not just exalted. He is highly exalted. There is no other. And you might not think much of this. After all, it's just returning. Isn't it just a returning back to where he was? John 17. And now, Father, Christ is praying. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's really not that big of a deal, you might say to yourself. Well, he's just returning back to where he was. Yes, but it's not just his divine nature that is going back up to the Father. His human nature is going and being exalted back up. Christ has emptied himself by taking on the flesh, being born in the likeness of men. And it's this humanity that is being exalted back. The fount of our redemption as humanity is now being lifted back up to the Heavenly Father. This is why we delight in it. Not that divine has just returned to divine, although that's amazing enough. It's that he has taken his humanity as well 
and gone back up to the heavenly Father. And he's bestowed upon him. Therefore God is highly exalted him and bestowed on him. What did he bestow on him? Okay. The name that is above every name. There is no other name under heaven and earth under which, by which men must be saved. All of his titles, all of his names, Redeemer, Messiah, Savior, King of kings, and Lord of, life, Lord of lords, Lord of life, the Lord of glory, the way of life, the living water, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of peace. Jesus. By which we will be proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. Recall also this exaltation of humiliation. <clears throat> it's not unique to this text. It's not so Paul is just pulling this out on his own. It's woven throughout all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, you look at Hannah, who was married, one of several wives, but she's the one who is barren and maligned, pushed aside, the wife of Elkanah. But it's out of this humiliation that she is exalted. Listen to her prayer in Second, First Samuel chapter 2. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Down to verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And those who were hungry have ceased to be hungry. The barren has borne seven. And she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And it's out of this framework of the humble being exalted and those who exalt themselves being humbled. That's how you read First and Second Samuel. It's under that. Saul is going to exalt himself. Inevitably, he is the one who is humbled. David, who constantly humbles himself, what is the end result? Is that he is exalted to being king. New Testament as well. Why is Mary chosen? Because of her humble state. Mary, the mother of Christ, and her, her Magnificat in Luke. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked upon my humble estate. The humble estate of his servant. He has looked upon my humble estate. I know I'm the lowest of the low. I understand that. 
But God has looked upon that humility. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. God has exalted her to be the mother of Christ out of her humble estate. And this continues on. Not just the Old Testament, not just uh, Mary in the New Testament, but it continues on then even into Revelation, into the throne room of God. This exaltation of Christ isn't just something we sing of now. It will continue on throughout all of eternity. That's why we long to partake of it now. As though it's the, the first fruits of this new creation coming out. Revelation, John writes, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and seven bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why are you worthy? Why are you exalted? For... Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And you have made them an, a kingdom and priest of our God, and they shall reign on earth. Why is Christ exalted? John is saying the same thing as Paul. Christ is being exalted because he was slain, because he was humbled, because he followed the will of his heavenly Father. This, this humbling redemption, he is he's able to reign because of it, but he also reigns for it as well. And he will be exalted because he was slain. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship him. All right, so in verse 9, we have seen how humility leads its way into exaltation. It's the inevitable result that that which is pressed low will be raised up. We saw that with Christ. We saw that with Hannah. We saw it with Mary. And then Christ again in Revelation. So, let's read verses 9 and 10 and see what does it look like? Okay, he's exalted. Great. What does it look like for him to be exalted? Go to the text here. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is both the reason and the result of his exaltation. The result of his exaltation is that every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everybody will be coming and worshiping him. When you see Christ without the veil hiding his glory, your result the result of that is that you will worship. Remember how we talked about the glory of Christ is like this, cloud, this, this bright sun. And there's momentarily, while he's in the flesh, there's this cloud that goes by. Well, the cloud will pass. And you will see him in his unfiltered, unmitigated glory. And you will worship him. I think about, pause, pause a little bit. 
Think about the motivation of Christ. What is motivating him to do this? And we have to answer that question. Why? Because Paul is having this as an example for us that Adam is going to preach on tonight. So what is the motivation of Christ? Is it in his just blind obedience to God the Father? Is that what it is? Or is there some self-interest in this as well? Blind obedience. Look at that. He can do nothing apart from the will of his heavenly Father. He will only do that which his Father has for him. Read this in John 5. He says, I can only do what I see the Father doing. Even in Isaiah chapter 50, it talks about this obedience of Christ in the suffering, the servant song, the third one. Isaiah writes, for the Lord has opened my ear, talking about the Messiah to come, who is, who is Christ. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace or spitting. So the Lord God helped me. Therefore, I have been I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is Christ, joyfully, joyfully following the will of his heavenly Father. You want me to turn my back to those who will strike me? I will do it. You want me to turn my face and not my back to those who will strike my face? Then yes, I will joyfully do it. Whatever you would have me to do, Father. All of this, the humbling of Christ, was accomplished as he followed the will of his heavenly Father. But, what about self-interest as well? And we're asking this question because we're at, we want to wrestle with, how do I understand this text and apply it to my own life? And that's why we're asking this question. So what about his self-interest? Well, the author of Hebrews, he writes, For since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Paul's using Christ as an example. The author of Hebrews is using Christ as an example that we should follow. Looking to Jesus. We're going to throw out all of this weight off of us. All of our sin. Everything of the world. We're going to throw it off and run to Christ. Looking to Christ. Who? is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand in the throne of God. So there is this self-interest as well. Consider even the blessing and the curses. They're given to you in the end of Deuteronomy. They're given to the nation of Israel. Why? As it's... To evoke this self-interest. Well, do you want to be blessed or do you want to be cursed? Which is it? Well, I want to be blessed. Well, then do this. Right? Or in Joel, the prophet Joel, many of the prophets calling them to repent. Why do you repent? Well, the Lord is holy, yes. But also, because of the day of the Lord is at hand. You will be judged. You will be punished. They're pulling on this thread of our own self-interest as well. The kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We preached on them five years ago, I think. You guys remember them. <laughs> Why do you sell everything and buy that field? Because it's in your own self-interest. 
to have that treasure in the field? Why do you sell everything and buy that pearl of great price? Because it's in your own self-interest to have that. What about in Matthew 12 when Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's calling for you to do that which is best for you. And we have to reorient our thinking because it tastes dirty. Because we oftentimes in our own self-idolatry, we don't realize that God's goodness and God's glory are always wed together. God's goodness for us is wed together with his glory. So what is it? This blind following of Christ? Yes. Is it in also our own self-interest? Absolutely. It is in your own self-interest to throw in the blinders and follow the will of God, even as it humbles you and brings you low, because you know this humility will only be temporal. But you will see the face of God forever, throughout all of eternity. So we don't just humble ourselves for humble sake. We do it joyfully knowing it's the best thing you can do is to humble yourself. So where does this happen, this exaltation of Christ? He's worshipped by all. Therefore, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where is this going to happen? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth? He's going to be worshipped by everyone, and he's going to be worshipped everywhere. He's going to be worshipped in heaven. Obviously. Lest you doubt the divinity of Christ, actually, there's no idolatry in heaven, so you know Christ is divine. He's going to be worshipped here on earth, as he is now and will be worshipped in the new heavens and new earth. But he's even going to be worshipped under the earth. For those who refuse to worship now, they, even they will bend their knees in homage and worship the Son. Application number two. We are foolish to not do it now. How foolish are we to think that we can just set aside Christ. I don't have to deal with him. I can just do whatever I want. No, no, no. You're delaying the inevitable. You will worship him. Either out of duty, because you will have to. Or out of delight. Either you will bow down yourself or you will be bent by the sovereign king. Either you can do it freely now from a heart that is reborn, a heart that is renewed, a heart that is alive for Christ. You can do it freely now or you can be forced to do it later. Come to Christ now. Worship him. You will worship him eventually.
Do it now freely. Do it out of delight. Don't do it out of a duty later on. You also see that it's not just every knee will bow, but every tongue will confess. And what are we going to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ. None other. It is, it is Christ alone. It's not our own goodness. It's not a, a song to ourselves. No. It's not Muhammad. It's not Shiva. It's nothing else. It's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not David. It is Christ and Christ alone. Christ alone is eternal and Christ alone is the one who is able to redeem us from our sins. It is Christ alone who has died on our behalf. It is Christ alone who has been raised up by the Father and it is Christ alone who will be highly exalted above all else. And we're not just saying Jesus Christ, we're going to be saying Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules and reigns over all things. He is king, and we will kiss the sun. Everything, even you, are and will be under his eternal dominion. And all of this See this last little clause here. All of this is happening to the glory of God the Father. Even the exaltation of Christ is not used for his own purpose. So when we're talking about self-interest, and you think that you're the, the, the aim of the exaltation, and if you're not thinking about the glory of God... In our own self-interest, that's just another shape of self-idolatry. Don't do that. But if you can be redeemed and be redeemed not just for yourself, but be redeemed for the glory of God. That's why all of this is happening. All it's where all of this is flowing is unto the glory of God the Father. There's one other place as we close. That shows quite clearly humility and exaltation all wrapped in one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone, everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and placed him in the manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You see the humility of Christ, don't you? Even in his birth. Born in a cave. Born in a cave. When they show up, oh, Joseph, it's so good to see you. We've heard your, your betrothed. Oh, let's see. Mary, you're pregnant. 
oh, sorry, we don't have room here in this, where we live in the cave. Go where the cattle are. We've got room for you guys there. The humility of Christ is right there, even in his birth. But it doesn't end there. Luke keeps writing. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy for all of the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. This is your Messiah. This is your sign. He's humble. Then, suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Don't you see it? The exaltation of Christ is right there with the humility of Christ. You see the humble Messiah born in a cave, placed in a manger, probably stone. And right there, the heavenly hosts burst out of heaven and exalt him, even while he's humbled. The emptying of Christ and the adoration of Christ are all in the one. So may God... May God incline our hearts and bend our knees to joyfully adore our humbled Messiah. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. As you humble us, God, let us delight in that. As you force us low and bring us low, God, give us eyes to see that those who you press low, you will raise up in your Son. God, let us have eyes to work all things for the fount towards your, your glory, God. Not of our own strength, not of our own desire, God, certainly not of our own exaltation, but God, let you receive all of the glory of our hearts, of our affections, of our worship. God, may you be glorified in all things and in all places. And God, let us bow our knees now to worship you. And let us joyfully proclaim that your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.